Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Beginning at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Yeshua, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Yeshua. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. Send it to the seven churches, the seven congregations, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Notice again, John restates he is the author. He said that in the first verse, where he said, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua. Here he says, I, John, and he describes himself as their brother and as their partner. On the one case, he's their brother because he's a son of God. He's a child of God. And as one who has been redeemed by the work of Messiah and is a, given the authority to become a child of God, remember that's what John writes in his gospel. We are not born children of God in one sense. To speak of oneself as a child of God uh, can mean a number of different things. On the one hand, we're all children of God by virtue of the fact that we are creations of God. But we are not all children of God by virtue of being a member of his family. That's something John chapter 1 tells us we are given the authority to become. We become that and we receive the authority to that end when we recognize who Yeshua is and what he's done for us. And it's at that point that we become members of the household of God, members of the family of God, and we become brothers and sisters to one another. And so I love this phrase that John uses, your brother. He could have said, your apostle, for he was such. He could have said, your pastor, for he served as such in Ephesus. He could have, in a sense, flaunted, is that the right word, flaunted, his authority. But he doesn't. He's a humble man. And so he speaks of himself merely as a brother, though he has authority because he's writing this book, this prophecy, this letter to the seven churches. And he writes them in such a manner because he has authority over them, but he doesn't flaunt his authority. He doesn't draw attention to his position, except with respect to what God has done for him. He is a brother, and this smacks of a great deal of humility. Not only is he a brother, but he's a partner with them. He's a sharer with them is what the word means. 
I am involved in the same way that you are with these three things. He says, first of all, I am partner with you in tribulation. Now, he's not referring to the tribulation, which is going to be discussed in the book that he's going to write. No, he's talking about the ongoing consternation, the challenges, and the trials that we all go through. Now, in his day, their trial, and in their area, their geography, their trials were of a particularly stark nature. Because this was the time when the Roman uh, emperor Domitian was reigning. And he unleashed an incredible amount of persecution against the believers, Nero and now he in the 90s. And because of John's faithfulness to his proclaiming the word of God and his service, he was seen and his actions were interpreted as acts of sedition. And so as a result, the Roman authorities placed him on the island of Patmos. That's what he tells us. The island Patmos was just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. It was only about six miles wide and four miles long. It had a great harbor, and so when one was sailing from, say, from Corinth, another port city, on the opposite side of the Aegean Sea in Europe, if they were traveling from Europe to Asia, they would take a ship from one of the port cities like Corinth or Philippi, and they would take a boat and they'd cross the Aegean and the last stop that they would make on one of the islands before they made it to Asia Minor was the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos was also a colony where those that were seen or interpreted as being antagonistic to Rome were placed for punishment, hard labor, working in the mines on the island. That's where John was consigned. That's where he had been sent. And so he says, he identifies himself as a partner in tribulation, for he was experiencing some great tribulation on this island. The second thing he tells us is not only is he a partner, one who joins with them in tribulation, but he's also one who joins with them in the kingdom. Well, he's talking about the kingdom that they are presently members of, that is the spiritual kingdom in which the Messiah is our king and our Lord. But he's also looking forward to that day when Messiah shall return and establish his kingdom on earth. More often than not, the term kingdom refers to his kingdom on earth. But there are occasions where the word kingdom is used in a sense of the family of God. And thus he's telling those he's writing to that he is one who joins with them in tribulation. But he is also one who is a partner with them in the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is to come and the kingdom that is existing presently in a more spiritual sort of form. But not only does he define himself as one who is a partner in their tribulation and in their kingdom, but also one who joins with them in the patient endurance that is in Yeshua. There's that phrase again, being in Messiah, in Yeshua. He's talking about those that are members of his body, those that are joined to him and linked to his father because of their being linked to him. And in being linked to him, we have a special measure of his spirit. And by means of his spirit, 
we are able to do things that we might not otherwise be able to do. Remember, Yeshua said, greater things than these one day shall be done by those followers of his that would follow in his train over the next course of the centuries to come. And one of the things that his spirit empowers us to do is to endure times of tribulation and to endure them as unto him. This word here for patient endurance is hypermeno. It means one that hyper perseveres. This is a word that's used over and over again by James, for example. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials of various kinds because your perseverance will work of a significant character development that the Lord wants to bring about in our lives. The word to endure, to persevere, me has the preface hyper in it. Sort of like my, my teachers would say if they were up on things in my day. The problem with him is he's hyperactive. They didn't say that. They just said he's too busy. He doesn't control himself. Well, I don't know what it was. I used to sit behind my desk, and I always was put in the last seat, and I'd be sitting there with my fingers, you know, just, just banging away. Little did they know, one day I'd be playing the drums, and they used to say, why don't you get him a drum set so he can get this out of his system? But I thought the desk sounded pretty good. But all that aside, the word hooper is where we get the word to be hyper from. And to hooper meno means to hyperly persevere, to work hard at persevering, to not give up easily at persevering, to staying the course, no matter how trying and difficult and challenging the course may appear. And when you do that, character will develop like you have never seen before. When you give up, that's when we don't become the kind of persons God would have us to be. Because remember, Yeshua hypermenoed. He hyper-persevered when he went through the trials and challenges and conflicts with the leadership of his day. When he was whipped and when he was scorned and when he was made fun of and when he had a crown of thorns put on his head. When a spear was put through his side. When the nails were put through his hands and his feet. When he was placed onto that cross. He hypermenoed and he persevered deeply and strongly. Remember, he said, I could call down a legion of angels. They would deliver me even right now. But no, he would hypermeno. He would be persevering so that you and I would experience the results which are forgiveness of sin and eternal life. What are the results that God wants to work not only in you but through you to others if we would as equally hypermeno through the trials and tribulations that we face? John said that he called himself, I am your brother, but I am also one who partners with you, who comes alongside of you, who also endures tribulation like you are, who also stands firm and perseveres in Messiah through the strength of Messiah, in the context of Messiah. We're not talking about just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're talking about dependency upon the Lord and his grace and his strength to enable us to put one more foot in front of the other, no matter how deep the mud might be that we have to trudge through. And so he is our partner in tribulation, his, our partner in perseverance, and our partner in the grand results of it all, 
entrance into the very fullness of the kingdom of God. And so John writes, and get this, he said that he was on the island of Patmos. Look at this, we're we're making our way. But in verse 9, for the word of God and the testimony of Yeshua. Now look at verse 2, where it says, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua. There it is again, the exact same phrase. So now we know that this was a man who in verse 2, the testimony of Yeshua is what he's about to write. That's what he, what he, how he uses the phrase in verse 2. The one who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Yeshua, even to all that he saw. So the testimony of Yeshua there and the word of God is what we're about to study through in the book of Revelation. But in verse 6, excuse me, verse 9, where he says he's on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Yeshua, he's talking about his ongoing ministry, not what he's about to see or about to write. He's talking about what characterized his life. And what characterized his life was he bore testimony of the love of Messiah. After all, he was the beloved disciple. He was one of John's disciples first when the Lord called him and he followed him. And thus now he is being persecuted for a life that he has lived, which was lived to the glory of his Messiah, the word of God and the testimony of Yeshua. Now look what he goes on to say. He says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Well, that forces us to pause for a moment. What does it mean to be in the spirit? Different ideas, different interpretations. Some understand this to mean simply he was worshiping God. To be in the spirit means to gather for worship or to come to worship. If it means that, it's very interesting because he is a prisoner on the island of Patmos serving in one of the salt mines that were characteristic of that island. And yet he found the time, despite the environment, despite the harshness, perhaps even despite the absence of other believers. He doesn't speak about other believers. We don't know if they're there or not. But he found the time, the energy to worship God. And while in a moment of worship, he sees the vision that we're about to see. That's how some understand it. Some understand being in the spirit, he had experienced a moment of, let's call it ecstasy, a moment, maybe a trance-like experience, maybe a trance experience, in which he was brought into a, uh, a place, I don't mean geographically, but a moment in his experience where he was simply in a trance, and in that trance-like moment, God made this revelation known to him. We read of others who experience such things. We don't have time. But if you look at Acts chapter 10, for example, you will read that Peter, while he was praying and worshiping, he went into a trance, and it was in that trance that the Lord gave him a vision. And he saw this, uh, this sheet with these unclean animals, and the Lord said, rise up and eat. And through that visionary experience, he was given a message to go to the Gentiles, namely Cornelius to present the word. And later when he explains what happens in Acts chapter 11, you can see it in verse 5, it's in chapter 11 that he defines what he experienced as a trance. In Acts chapter 10, it simply says he fell into a trance. The narrator, Luke, is telling us this. 
But in chapter 11, his personal testimony is, I fell into a trance. By the way, he's not the only one. Paul did as well. He tells us in Acts chapter 22 that when he was in the temple, he fell into a trance and the Lord spoke to him, spoke to him about his need in terms of his service and his soon being uh, exiled or sent to, to Rome. But in both instances, there's this trance-like experience. And Paul writes about a a trance-like experience in 2 Corinthians 12, where he said he was in the third heavens, in the body, out of the body. I don't know. He couldn't so describe it. Could that have been a trance-like experience? Probably. And so all that John says is he was in the spirit. So different ways of understanding it, being that he was worshiping, being that he was brought into a trance-like experience. Maybe both are true. He was worshiping like Peter and then brought into such an experience. And he tells us that this was done on the Lord's Day. This is another interesting phrase. Some people understand the Lord's Day as referring to the day of the Lord when he returns and brings judgment on the earth. And so it was something like in a trance-like experience through worship and prayer, he was transported to the end of time when the Messiah would come. And at that moment, he saw this vision. That's how some see it. I think that's pushing it, but that's how some see it. Some see it as a uh, reference to the first day of the week. Most see it that way, by the way, of the commentaries I read. They see the Lord's day as the day when the Lord was resurrected and therefore the first day of the week. And that's how many people understand the phrase Lord's day even to this day. And that's a possibility. Others understand this because the word Lord, interestingly enough, is an adjective in this phrase, in this verse, in this uh, phrase. And so as an adjective, it's, it's like he is saying... He was in the spirit on the, a day that he could only describe as a Lord-like day. In other words, you might say he was uh, in the spirit uh, on a good day. But good is too small a word to define how good the day was that John was in. Because on this day, he's going to see a vision of the Lord in all of his glory. And so it's almost like, I'm telling you, this was great. No, it's not strong. This was awesome. This was good. It was a Lord-like day. It was like a, a God day. That's sort of the, how many understand this. This is like a Lordly day. And thus, it was on the Lord's day, or a day in which the Lord was manifested in the fullness of his glory and splendor and majesty. And the only way to describe that is by making it as a reference to the Lord himself. It was like a Yeshua day. You know, it was that glorious. Many people understand it that way as well. However we understand it, John is introduced to a vision of Messiah unlike any other he has had before. Notice what he says. He said, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a scroll. It's not a book. Don't think of a, uh, a book like we have today. They didn't have books like that in those days. It is the word for a scroll. Write what you see in a scroll. Send it to the seven congregations, the seven churches, and he names them. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. 
Now, this is interesting, too. Because when the voice speaks, he says it sounds like a trumpet. The idea is that it was loud and clear. Couldn't mistake this voice. And he knew exactly what the voice wanted. You are to write in a scroll what I'm going to tell you, and you're to send it to these seven churches. By the way, the other place we see a voice sounding like a trumpet is at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, Moses hears the voice and he describes it as that like a trumpet. He says it maybe two or three times in Exodus 19. As I said before, much of what goes on in the book of Revelation is already made reference to in the Hebrew scriptures. So by way of understanding what's going on, we have to sort of take a detour, go back to see where it had appeared before, and then it helps us understand what's going on in what John is seeing. So John hears this voice crystal clear, uh, just uh, sounding out, much like Moses heard the voice of God on Mount Sinai, which sounded like a trumpet. Isaiah, by the way, also speaks of the voice of God as sounding like a trumpet also. Then he goes on to tell us, the voice told him to write in the scroll what he has seen, and he's to send it to these seven churches, beginning with Ephesus, which was probably the largest church, the most influential church right there at a major port city. You can visit the ruins today. It's an incredible ruins, and at our home group, we were looking at it online when we studied together the book of Ephesians. But evidently, each one of these churches was only separated from each other by no more than 35 or 50 miles. And they followed a road that was in a circle in the eastern section of Asia Minor. So what it appears is that the letters to go to John, uh, excuse me, go to Ephesus, from Ephesus it would go to the next city, Smyrna, from there to Pergamum, Thyatira, right around this this. A circular a roadway by which all mail, all uh, information would have been circulated. And thus, John's letter is to circulate. So this is probably a circulation letter. Even though there are specific messages to the seven churches found in chapter 2 and 3, all of the churches are to read all of the book that he's about to write. So now, we now are given the vision itself. Verses 9 Uh, through 11, basically give us the the foundation for the vision. But now here's the vision. I turn to see the voice. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, just these little phrases. didn't say, I turn to look at the person that spoke. He just says, I turn to look at the voice. Because the voice must have been so overwhelming that he wasn't even thinking of the person attached to it. He just wanted to look around. He expected to see the voice itself because it was so clear, so permeating, so present. And so he went to turn. And on turning, he saw seven golden lamp stands. Now, what he's talking about are basic stands made of gold. Solomon speaks of them in the temple that he built. And these lamp stands would have on them these uh, clay, oftentimes clay uh, lamps, oil lamps, that almost like Aladdin's lamp, but they're made out of clay, and they would be filled with oil, and then there'd be light, or the flame sticking out of the, the spout on the opposite end. And so we see seven of these stands, but these stands are made of gold. And in the temple, there would have been such stands, and you would have individual lamps or lights upon them. Candles didn't exist in those days, so you don't have candles. You have oil lamps. 
And so he sees these seven lampstands. Now he'll be told what they signify. If you look at the end, very last phrase, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the voice is coming from the midst of the churches, as it were. The voice of the one is standing in the midst of these churches. He's in the midst of them. They're his. They belong to him. Now let's go on. In the midst of the lampstands, one stood like the son of man. Now, this is interesting, too, because the only reference to Messiah as the Son of Man is in Daniel chapter 7. I read that this morning as we started the service. One like the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days. The books were open and the kingdoms were given to the Son of Man. Full dominion is given to him. Daniel 7. This is a title for the Messiah. He is the Son of God. To be the Son of Man means to be the Son of God doesn't mean to be the son of a human being. It means to be personally related and identified with God himself. Can't get into all that now. We'll never get through the book of Revelation. But that's what the phrase son of means, to be identified with, to be associated with. To be the son of man means to be the one that God has appointed, the one that God has chosen. And given that, he is able to stand before the throne of God. And as we look at the book of Revelation, he is portrayed as God is in in Daniel 7. He is seen in his deity. So look what we're, we're seeing. He had on him a clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is odd too. You know, this word in the Greek for robe is found seven times in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Greek translation. Six of them, they are only applied to the robe of the high priest. No other robe. No other priests have this word attached to it. Six of the seven times, it's the high priest. So he's dressed in a priestly robe. On top of that, he has a golden sash. Now, Josephus tells us that the high priest in the first century had a sash around his waist. And... I don't know what's the right word, intertwined with the fabric, what would you call that, sewed into the fabric, were golden threads. But what John is seeing is one who has a priestly sash, but it's entirely made of gold. Not that there are golden threads, but it's all of gold. And get this, notice it's not around his waist. It's around his chest. It's a big sash, and it's around his chest. It signifies his authority, his power, and his might. This is not an ordinary priest. This is a priest of great dignity. This is a priest of great height. This is a priest that stands apart from all the other priests, be they high priests or not. And so we're getting a priestly image of the one who we are already told is the rulers of the kings of the earth. And the one who bore testimony faithfully. So we're getting the offices of our Messiah. He's God, son of man, and he is yet our great high priest with great authority overall. And notice further what he sees. He says the hair of his head were white, like white wool. By the way, the number seven is important. When you start at verse 14, there are seven descriptions of the Messiah that are given at verse 14. After you told what he's worn, now we look at him personally, and there are seven descriptions. The first is his hair. It's white like wool. This is right out of Daniel 7. The Ancient of Days is seen with white hair. This whiteness of hair denotes maturity, fullness, age, 
meaning that he always is. He's of an eternal nature. And the whiteness speaks of his purity. He's holy. And therefore the seraphim will say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The Messiah who is dressed in a priestly robe, whose voice is like a trumpet, is pictured as God himself. He's pictured in his deity as God is in Daniel chapter 7. Further, look what he goes on to say. That's his hair. Then we have his eyes. They were like a flame of fire. Fire, of course, speaks of judgment. His eyes are penetrating. He sees all things. Remember he said he never had to entrust himself to anyone because he knew all men's hearts. He sees fully into the hearts and minds of everyone and therefore can judge rightly. But his eyes are a flame of fire because as the book of Revelation will reveal, he's coming in judgment to judge the nations. And so he's depicted with his eyes penetrating, looking, and looking to bring judgment on those that have acted wickedly and particularly towards his people, as we will see. So not only his head and his eyes, but then he says his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. You know, in the temple... The, uh, the lava was made out of bronze. This seems to suggest, suggest his sacrificial giving of himself. Like bronze burnished in fire, so Messiah had gone through the fire to provide salvation and redemption for us. Now, these are all symbols. By the way, if you look at verse 1, it says that these are the things that he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. The Greek word make it known means to sign, to give as signs and symbols. That's why the book of Revelation is full of signs. He is making it known through these images. And so what we're seeing here are images of Messiah. And these images denote his character. So his hair is seen as white because he's holy. His hair is white because he's seen as fully mature and complete as the living God. His eyes are a flame of fire. They're not really fire, but they are looking out to judge where, it, where judgment is rightly uh, earned or deemed necessary. His feet speaks of his power, his strength, his might, upon which he stands, made of burnished bronze, and his might comes through his sacrificial atonement for our sin. That's where his greatest power has been demonstrated thus far, him giving his life a ransom for many. But not only that, he then moves us from his feet, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Here's an interesting passage, and we're running out of time, so we're going to stop. But look at Ezekiel. This is such an incredible passage. I have to just take a moment to draw your attention to it. Ezekiel chapter 43. And in chapter 43, when Ezekiel sees the future coming of the glory of God, remember the book of Ezekiel, chapters 9 through 11, 8 through 11, the theme is ich kavod. Kavod is the Hebrew word for glory. It means to be heavy, weighty. That's why God is oftentimes, his presence is seen as smoke in the Holy of Holies, heavy. And that's why people bow before him. He's heavy, weighty, authoritative has power. And so kavod it means to be weighty, to be heavy, and it's translated oftentimes as glory. Ich is a Hebrew expression meaning nothing, gone. So ich kavod means gone is the glory. And so Ezekiel captures for us how the glory smoke in the Holy of Holies departed. 
never to have been seen again until Messiah arrives. Something we can't talk about right now, but until he arrives. But when he comes at his second coming, the glory of the Lord will return. And Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel gives us the prophetic uh, uh, voice, through a prophetic voice, tells us what it will be like when the glory returns. Look what he says. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. He's talking about the beautiful gate of the temple. He's talking about the eastern side of Jerusalem, facing the Mount of Olives. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. Isn't that interesting? But he's talking about the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory coming with the sound of many waters. Why? Because when the Shekinah glory appears, the Messiah is always there. The two always go together. Wherever the Messiah is, that's where the glory is. And wherever the glory is not, that's where Messiah vacates. That's why on the cross, it turns dark. The Shekinah glory has departed. Why? Because he's taken on the sin of the world. But when he's born, it's the Shekinah glory that's leading the Magi to his place of birth. Or I should say place where he's living. He's two years old when they get there. But the point is, the Shekinah glory is wherever Messiah is. And so in Revelation... When he heard the voice of the Messiah, it was like the sound of rushing waters. Ezekiel, when he sees the glory of God come, he sees it coming, and what does he hear? A voice with the sound of rushing waters. Why? Because the voice is the voice of Messiah. Ezekiel's not focused on the Messiah who is with the glory. Ezekiel's focused on the glory. But he hears something alongside of it. What does he hear? He hears the presence of Messiah himself. And what do we see in Revelation? We see that his voice was like the the roar of rushing waters. It denotes his power and might. When he speaks, everyone obeys. That's why he can say, let there be light. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And everything that was made was made by the Word. And not only was it made by the word, but according to Paul, everything that was made is sustained by the word. In Colossians chapter 1, he sustains all things. He holds all things together. Why? Because he is the sovereign king of the universe. And his voice is like rushing waters. When his voice resounds, no one can dismiss it. No one can ignore it. No one can disobey it. And that's why when he says to Judas, what you must do, do quickly, and he's gone. And he does it quickly. That's why he says to his son, son, behold your mother, and he takes control or takes care of his mother from that time to the present. That's why he'll say to the storm, be still, be calm, peace, and it is. Because his voice is the voice like of many waters that cannot be ignored and cannot be disobeyed. That is our Messiah. That is our Lord. And that's only part of what John describes for us, right? We didn't get very far. We're, we're trying, we're trying. I really did try to get to verse 20. But no, no matter, the joy is what we learn in the process, in the journey, about Messiah when we learn it. And are these not glorious images of our Lord? Doesn't it make sense that John would say, I was in 
the Spirit in the Lord's day, this Lord-y-like day, this day that cannot be described as other than a day of God. Because Messiah, I saw him in a way that I had never seen him before. And keep this in mind. John saw him on the Mount of the Transfiguration. And when he saw him on the Mount of the Transfiguration, he, Peter, James, bowed before the Lord. Here, he is seeing him in even a greater demonstration of his glory than he had seen before. It is no wonder, the text says, he fell on his face as if dead. And how wonderful it is that it says the Lord took his right hand. Remember, it said that in his hand are the seven stars. We didn't get to that. But the imagery has the stars, but then all of a sudden, no, 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 forget the stars. His hand is on the shoulder of John. And he simply says to him, fear not. How many times did John hear those words, right? He heard it in the boat, fear not, you know? I love that phrase, fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's such a great verse in Luke, you know? But fear not. As powerful as I am, as intimidating as I can be, that's not how I am to you. You are my child. And you're seeing me for who I am. And I'm here for you. <laughs> you know? Isn't it wonderful to know that's the kind of Messiah you and I have at our side? To defend us and to comfort us. Right? To lead us in the way of righteousness. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. That's who we want alongside. The one who could say, hey, fear not. And then what John sees throughout this, he is faithful in writing all that the Lord tells him to write and even not writing what the Lord tells him to write. There's a passage where after he sees it, the Lord says, don't write that. And he says, no problem. <laughs> you know, I won't do it. You know, But that's the Lord who loves us, who gave his life for us. And yet his voice is like the sound of rushing water. Well, let's pray. As I'm praying, the worship team can come on up. The ushers can get ready. And let's all turn our hearts to him. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for the glorious manifestation of your holy self that we see in these verses. Indeed, it is a God day that John experienced. But even now, as we reflect upon it, it's still pretty moving, even though we're reflecting on what John saw and trying to understand it as your spirit gives us opportunity. So, Father, we pray that as we look at these words, you will unfold them to us. And not that we would be informed, but, Lord, we would be transformed for your honor and for your glory. Father, whatever trials we may be going through, may we remember you are right there with your hand on our shoulders saying, Fear not. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No no matter what uh, challenges we are facing, as hard as they are, and sometimes they're awfully hard and it appears as if we're never going to get out from under it, you are the one who has your right hand upon us, saying, Fear not, it is my pleasure to give you my kingdom. And thus one day, We will enter into that kingdom. Help us to hypermeno. Help us to hyper-persevere. 
Grant us your spirit that we would remain strong and vigilant in our service, in our walk, and in our life. So we bless you, Lord, and we thank you. For you in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.